Welcome to Sonos here with Kevin Clark. I am Kevin Clark. Yeah. Two segments today. Both of them are fascinating. First one is with Cooper Batagna. He is a 24-7 national recruiting analyst. He's a former personnel guy at a bunch of places you've heard of. Michigan, Alabama being two of them. Um, Oregon as well. And we went through basically the increasingly efficient high school to college pipeline in the draft. And I wanted to learn basically what was happening at the high school level that was informing the NFL level because it's getting really interesting. And teams, college teams are getting much better at scouting there. And then that shows up on draft day. You're seeing that with the Eagles. You've been seeing it for years with Alabama, but now it's spreading. So we had a really interesting talk about Georgia, about Kirby, about what's happening to even high school sophomores where NFL guys are being identified quicker. Uh, I really enjoyed this. And then Lindsey Jones and I recap the weekend that was uh, just typical, typical fun with Lindsey. Um, great segment. And yeah, so here's Cooper. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. All right, Cooper Patagna, 24-7 national recruiting analyst, former personnel guy for Oregon, Michigan, Washington. Uh, did it feel good, Cooper? Because I, I, this is a really insane analogy. I met my wife like six months before dating apps became a thing. And so whenever I talk to someone who's talking about dating apps. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on there. It sounds chaotic as hell. I don't want anything. I don't, I don't want to know. Just stop talking to get out of personnel and go into media before NIL really took shape must've been a godsend for you because it sounds like a nightmare right now, Cooper. <laughs> I'll tell you what NIL actually is not the one that keeps you up at night. It's the transfer portal. Yeah. That would be the one, you know, if there, if there's one that you're saying, okay, I'm glad I got out at the time that I got out, it would be the transfer portal. Because right now, I mean, between these two portal windows, coaches being on the road, there's a lot of bullets flying. So th there's a lot to, to manage there. It's crazy. And it, those two things coming together because the, I mean, like that, that was the shock to the system. And that's why I think people misunderstood when Lane Kiffin a couple of years ago said free agency is coming to football. It wasn't on my high school recruiting. He was talking about a sophomore defensive tackle saying, I need $500,000 or else I'm going to go somewhere else. Like that's what happened. And we've heard, I'm sure you've heard 10 times stories I have about guys just saying, Hey, I'm going to the portal unless I get $300,000 by tomorrow. And then, well, they didn't get to the portal in a lot of cases. It is a, it must be a nightmare to be on a staff right now. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot going on. And 
It's different because a lot of these teams, they're not structured the same way, right? These aren't 32 teams in a billion-dollar industry in the NFL. And sure, there's a lot of money poured into college football, but you know, all 130 teams in the FBS are not created equally, right? So a lot of these departments, you got Georgia, Alabama, so on and so forth, Miami as well, pouring a lot of money and resources into their program. But outside of that, all legal, all Miami's done. It's totally above board. I had to, I had to give you the shout out. I know you're a Miami (laughs) guy, but um, yeah, I, I think a lot of these, it puts a lot of stress on the support staff system, right? The, the personnel departments, the people who have to juggle these responsibilities and the coaches as well. We've seen a lot of burnout, a lot of these college coaches. I mean, you look at Florida alone, I don't know how many coaches they had leave for the NFL, but that's certainly not something that's just exclusive to them. So there's been a lot of different ripple effects, not only at the collegiate level, but how it's impacting guys and their career. Maybe they're taking a little bit less money to go work in the NFL, but they got a better quality of life. I've heard some crazy stories. We can get into that a little later, but man, uh, let's start here. And the reason you're here is because you and Bud Elliott were talking on Twitter this week. And I thought it was really fascinating about the, the Georgia pipeline and how good recruiting services in general, 24 seven, there's a reason. And I was explaining this the other day to someone and they didn't really get it. The reason 24 seven has 32 five-star athletes, five-star recruits in its high school rankings every year is because they're projecting the first round of the draft three years later or four years later. Um, I don't think people really get that. They're not looking, obviously they're looking for the best college players and those guys become the best college players on a, on an aggregate basis, but that's what they're trying to do. And I I heard you say on on your pod the other day um, that you think that aside from signing day, the draft is the second biggest day in, in your industry or should be in the recruiting analyst industry because it's the day you find out whether or not you guys were, were, were good or not projecting out. And it looks like it's becoming more efficient and, and, and recruiting analysts and then by extension teams are getting better film and they understand the data better and there's track and field information, that sort of stuff. Um, and I'd like to just open the floor to you. Um, when you were looking at this draft, what did it tell you about the way we evaluate high school recruits? And and I want to get into Georgia specific, specifically in a second, but let's just start big picture. Um, what did this teach you? Well, that's a great question. You know, I was going through some of the statistics that our, our staff had put together and really the first round diving into that. And throughout the week, we'll get into more rounds two through seven. But for all 32 picks or 31 picks, I should say, in the first round of the NFL draft this year, all of them coming from power five programs, I thought was astounding. Mm. That's the first time that's happened since 1967 in the wow. common draft era. So all of these guys from the power five programs, you had 13, five stars, you had eight, eight, four stars, you had eight, three stars, and then you had two players that were unranked. I think what you're seeing here is you're seeing the floor of the process improve, right? So recruiting industry is starting to understand how to miss smarter. And when I, what I, what I mean by that is the philosophy that is a standardized philosophy that you see at the top of college football in, in really Georgia over a two year span has put out 25 NFL draft picks. That's the most in a two year span in NFL history. You're seeing this height, weight, speed philosophy. It's very simple, but bigger, faster, stronger football players not only do you evaluate those players subjectively on tape, but the information era of where we are right now in college athletics and the information that you can now start getting really as early as a sophomore in high school. What I mean by that, there are third-party services that now collect standardized information that is no different than how a prospect would test 
at an NFL combine. So a 40, a short shuttle, a broad jump, a vertical jump, so on and so forth. You have those metrics from the time a player and a prospect is 15 years old to the time they're 18 years old and they graduate. So when you were projecting players three to four to five years down the line, you're really projecting the athlete more than you're projecting the player on the field. You want to know what's in the body and the athletic potential of the player as well. So when track and field comes up, when multi-sport athleticism comes up, those are really big indicators. And, you know, you want to talk about guys like Devon Weatherspoon, right? All right. Why'd we miss on him? We're already asking that question. He was an unranked player. Well, he was a basketball player, a, a pretty legitimate basketball prospect. And he played football and he picked it up as a junior in high school, was a non-academic qualifier, goes to a JUCO, goes to Illinois. The rest is history. Dalton Kincaid was a guy that walked on at the University of San Diego. Same type of deal at background as Devon Weatherspoon was a basketball prospect, goes to Utah, adds on 50 pounds, and then you know he's a first-round draft pick as well. So what I mean by that is there's going to be some outliers year in and year out. I think where the industry has improved is they've started to understand where they've missed in the past, and they've started to weed those, those misses out, per se. I have so many things that I want to talk about um, from that because that was fascinating. First thing is you mentioned the Power Five thing. I, I thought about this this over the weekend, where I mean, a lot of G five schools are just not going to have NFL guys go go from there to the NFL because they're going to transfer to a Power Five school for their last year. Normally, I mean, you think about a guy FSU's Brandon Fisk would be a great example where he's in the MAC, he's going to spend one year and in, in Tallahassee. And then he'll go be a second or third round pick if, if he performs like he should next year. Like that's just that's just going to keep happening. But I want to talk about the the testing thing because I, I really didn't know. I knew that Georgia was doing stuff with GPS, but I didn't know that you're getting that kind of combine type data. Is that proprietary to schools, or is it like do do schools have to subscribe to this this service that that did it in you know their sophomore year or whatever? Is that kind of a a uh, a big school advantage? So this is a third-party service. This is called UC Report. They started in, I want to say, 2017, 2018. So it would have been really my first year at the University of Washington. As far as I understand right now, they have are uh, subscribed out to every Power 5 program Whoa. in college football outside of Iowa, which is fascinating, right? Because you look at Iowa, two first-round draft picks. And Iowa, to me, they got the secret sauce. To where, like, every year, I almost feel like as a safety hazard, we got to go back. We got to do a deep dive on Iowa's class. And we got to make sure that we're, we're not missing some. Because, I mean, you got guys like Luke Van Ness. You got guys like Jack Campbell. I mean, year in and year out, they have some players that just seem to be overlooked in the process. But I guess to, to tie it all in, Kevin, when I started at Alabama in 2014, I mean, we were just going from the DVDs to huddle. Right. Huddle was the, the digital database, right, where prospects would upload their film and we would have access to it. Camp in, in summer camp at that point was so critical in the evaluation process yeah. because it was really the only time that you could get players on campus to work out and see move for you. Now, these combines that happen over the spring, over the summer, it's all video based, right? So all this is recorded. It's then sent out to all the clients, which is uh, uh, the majority of the vast majority, 99% of Power 5 programs. Now where they ha would have to be a little bit patient and waiting for prospects to come to campus, 
This process has accelerated. They have the video, and now they have a full scope of a player where four or five years ago, that was not the case. Wow, that's fascinating. Iowa, real quick, is it anything other than just getting like farm boys and then getting them in the weight room? Because I did a George Kittle thing a couple of years ago, and it's funny because a guy who played a huge role in that, um, well, first of all, Pat Angerer, uh was in the weight room and from the NFL and basically told George Kittle, like, if, you know, you can get to the NFL, just hit the weight room. That was basically, you know, and, and just don't drink, which is in Iowa easier said than done. Um, it does Iowa's words, not mine. Um, but, and then essentially when, when Kittle got there, it's funny because Chris Doyle was obviously, uh, disgraced in the meantime, but basically he, they, Iowa does things that the NFL wants to do sort of incidentally. So like, Chris Doyle had, and some of the Iowa coaches basically just said to George Kittle, like, Hey man, like good prospect, but learn to run block or else you'll never play here ever. And like that then dovetails with the NFL coaches who were like, Oh cool. He can block. Oh great. He can catch too, but like he can run block. Good. We'll take George Kittle. So it makes sense that Iowa does it, but is there anything else Iowa does that we should know about? Well, they, they do a really good job. I mean, we, we keep talking about this, but it needs to be reinforced. Like people need to be beat over the head with this, but the, the multi-sport participation yeah. is, it, it it's a huge, I would say, indicator of success. And what I mean by that, we're not just looking for players that check boxes, right? It's like, hey, uh, he plays basketball and he runs track and field. A lot of these guys, these athletes going in the top 32, I mean, they have legitimate track and field background, shot put, discus, 100, 200 meter, the hurdles. And the, and the, and the great part about track and field and different events they tell you different things about different positions, right? If you're looking at the shot put in disc, it's an indicator of lower body explosiveness, right? So you're looking at that for point of attack players, mid-skill players on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. The 100 is obviously an indicator of speed. There's 259 draft picks, right, out of uh, skill positions on offense and defensive side of the ball. So let's call it receivers and defensive backs. Of all the players that got drafted at those positions, 89% of those guys played track and field in high school, right? So there is uh, a pattern that you're starting to see here. So Jack Campbell, for example, three-sport athlete coming out. Luke Van Ness was a specialist, which means he only played one sport. But Van Ness is also this very instinctive player. He goes and runs 4-5-1 at the combine. He checks that box for all the evaluators on Sundays. Now there's really nothing that they have to worry about. So that number of players, there's 259 players over, I want to say hovering around 65% of those guys in high school played another sport. Wow. Um, all right. Let's get to the specifics of, of, of the draft here. What does Kirby smart want in a, in a player? Because Jalen Carter, you mentioned this, like Jalen Carter was a punter for a popka. In outside of Orlando, he was a tight end. Like we know what kind of uh, athletes end up at Georgia, but from a recruiting standpoint, it seems like Kirby Smart a recruits a national high school all star team, but B has a certain type of athlete that he wants. And I know every position is different, so we'll, we'll just focus in on the front seven because all of those guys seem to just take a beeline to to the smartest front office in football right now. Um, what what's Kirby's athletic profile philosophy? Well, it's very similar to what Nick Saban's was, if not the same yeah. thing. He yep. he's listen, a lot of people want to replicate it, emulate it. The only way that you do that is you have to go out and you have to execute it, right? Everybody talks about height, weight, speed, what they want in the front seven. I think Kirby Smart's ability to go out and acquire this type of talent, and, and I'll use that word 
in, is just second to none. He's done an exceptional job. We've talked about what he's done over the last two years, the continuity there. But in terms of the, the player profile, I mean, they're looking for Sunday players, right? And that might sound simple, but there is position specifics for every single one of these guys, right? So if you're a nine technique, a five technique, a three technique, a one technique, it's going to differ, right? If you're going to play on the inside, if you're going to play on the outside, every position is going to be very specific. And it's why they call them position specifics, right? The criteria for every player is different. So they have critical factors. A lot of it ranges, you know, up to 10 attributes that they are looking and grading for every position. Uh, and that's how they will evaluate. But, you know, Georgia this past year signed three of the top five linebackers in the 2023 cycle. Not a lot of people are talking about it. I thought it was a very uh, underreported storyline, but what they continue to do at the front seven is second to none. Uh, and it's a simple philosophy, but they are basically saying, all right, here's a criteria. We're going to be bigger, faster, stronger, more physical, more explosive. And on top of that, these guys are not only going to have the production on tape, they're going to check every box physically as well. That's what Georgia has done. It's pretty It's pretty simple. And now the fact that they've had the success on the field, it's allowed Kirby Smart to start stockpiling this talent year in and year out. Uh, I believe Will Anderson uh, was not heavily recruited by Georgia because they didn't think he was going to become, they didn't think he was going to grow in the same way that he ended up growing. And Nick Saban obviously took advantage of that. And so you think about the ways they project those Sunday guys. Um, I believe Will Anderson grew up a Georgia fan, by the way. Um, they project the Sunday guys. It's really interesting to me when you said that they, so let's, let's take pass rusher as an example. So you obviously know a lot of Alabama, but when they're, they're going through that, is there a trait? It would surprise people that that Kirby and and Nick look for because I hear so much. I mean, Kirby was talking about at a coach's clinic a couple weeks, a couple of years ago, talking about how he looks for big butts. Uh, Hugh Freeze now is talking about ankle size and ankle thickness and and how how he, he looks at that for for the amount of speed they can accumulate or, or amount of weight they can put on, whatever, all all that kind of stuff, body mass index, whatever. Um, is there something? Let's take a pass rusher, a trait that would surprise people that those guys look for to to say, okay, this guy might be. 218 pounds now, but he's going to be, you know, 270 and he's going to be a first round pick in, in, in three years. What are they looking for to surprise people? If you're looking at Will Anderson, I mean, it's not much of a surprise, but if you're looking at Will Anderson, it would be interesting because obviously Georgia would have had Will Anderson on campus multiple times. We heard this about a pass rusher and a guy like by Joe, he ended up signing with Michigan state. He was from Senegal originally and, and played lower level competition in Oklahoma, but Will Anderson NFL combine, he's got an 81 inch wing right at six foot three and a half. Uh, so you're thinking about a guy six and a half inches uh, of a wingspan, what he can grow into. Now he's 253 pounds right now. So it's also scheme dependent, how they see the player. Is he going to play in a three, four? Is he going to play in a four, three? And the, the interesting part about Will Anderson is not to sidestep your question, but he's going to play in a four down front under D'Amico Ryans at 253 yep. pounds. That's not a real natural fit for a five technique. Now, I do think that's the guy that can transcend. They wouldn't take him at number three unless they thought he could do that. But a lot of this comes down to arm length, wingspan, growth potential. You talked about, you know, Sean Payton uh, to me, you know, I grew up in New Orleans, New Orleans Saints fan, but he always talked about ass and mass. That's what he wanted mm -hmm. on the line of scrimmage, right? We talk about these bubble butts, and it's funny when people uh, who, who don't really know the evaluation lingo, you start to hear that a little bit, but they're all indicators, right? Hugh Freeze talked about the skinny ankles, but if you're evaluating a defensive back or even an offense or defensive lineman, 
you can tell a lot on how athletic a player is based off of their ankles and what that looks like and what their body type looks like as well. So all that and, and, and the same with the butt. I mean, it's an indicator of power, right? How much natural ability they have to move people. Are you a functional athlete or is this something that you have in your body that is natural? So all those things play into it. Just going off of what you saw in college, who is your favorite prospect that you saw come off the board? Doesn't have to be a Georgia player who went in the top 30. Doesn't matter. Like, was there a guy where you said, okay, this guy is an Uber athlete and he's going to develop into something at the next level? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I'm, I'm looking at it right now and I'm trying to use my experience based off of maybe some of the guys that, you know, I saw when I was in, yeah, of course. in high school and, and maybe uh, some of the guys I've, I've gotten familiar with. I mean, just to, just a name off the off the top of my head, you know, Mozzie Smith was a guy that we had in Michigan. I was there in 2017. I got my years mixed up and he came into the 2019 class and he was an in-state guy and he was big and he was powerful and he was explosive. But the, a lot of these guys surprise you, man. They get into a college uh, weight and strength conditioning program like we talk about Iowa. And they got so much more in their body than I think you, you give them credit for. So Mozzie Smith, I think, is more of a high floor guy. I think he's going to be a really good player for Dallas. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, the the Dalton Kincaid cat is just like a vacuum. You know, I got to see him a little bit uh, when I was in the Pac-12. And he is a different skill set. And I think what we're learning is, Kevin, I know you do a really good job of trying to relate high school to NFL draft projections and, and stay with those trends. But I thought there were there was going to be a good chance at least two tight ends would be drafted in the top 32. Mm. You know, whether that was Luke Musgrave, whether that was uh, Michael Mayer, whether that was Darnell Washington from Georgia. If you're a running back, safety, or tight end, and you're going to go in the top 32 of the NFL draft, I, you really got to be an outlier in a special way. That's that's kind of what I've learned. And Bijan and uh, Jameer Gibbs going in the top 12. That's the first time that's happened in six years, right? The last two guys to do that were Christian McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette. So you start to see these, these little trends, but um, no, I, I would have to go through it a little bit more. The other guy that was a complete freak during the high school evaluation process that you're just like, all right, if this guy doesn't hit, I don't know why was Nolan Smith, you know, mm -hmm. and he gets a little bit better and he develops. He had the injury this past year. That's probably why he slid a little bit, but I mean, that guy can do a lot of different things. He's fun. Somebody sent me a death threat the other day because I said I like Nolan Smith. It was very strange. It was in Instagrams. <laughs> it was in the Instagram DMs. And I was like, this is a little much. And sometimes this guy, and he sends me DMs every couple of weeks. And uh, sometimes he confuses me with other ringer podcasters. And I always wonder if I should like forward the death threats to my colleagues. I'm always like, hey, man, this death threat was actually for you. This is not um, for you. Yeah, yeah, hey, man. I didn't want to say this. Um, all right. So uh, you mentioned a couple of days ago on your own thing about uh, about watching Bryce Young tape. How often does it happen where a prospect just stops you in your tracks and you're watching it and you're going like, oh my God, hey, you have to, you have to come see this. It's funny because I, I remember uh, Eric Bieniemy told me a story about the first time they saw Patrick Mahomes. Um, and it was, I think Matt Nagy was the first person to flag them where it's like, you know, come get, come get every offensive coach who's, come get the intern, come get the, you know, the third quarterback. We got to watch this guy. Um, and it felt like, in 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 some way, Bryce Young, when he's throwing pass and distributing it as a point guard, was that for you? Um, how often do you see a guy like Bryce Young on tape? Because you watch it when you were in, in a facility. Not not many. It's, uh, I think you described it pretty well. It's like who's the guy that makes you stop what you're doing 
and go out in the hallway, find somebody that you really trust and respect, bring them into your office and say, hey, you got to watch that. The only other time I did it is when Arch Manning was in eighth grade with Chris Peterson. <laughs> and I, I knew we had no shot with Arch Manning. I, I didn't even want to offer him. I was just like, hey, you yeah. got to is worth two and a half minutes of your time, you know? So, uh, no, Bryce Young, I thought was special. Uh, I think if you look at Bryce Young and he's such an outlier, in, but from a production standpoint, I mean, this guy was completed, I think over 72% of his passes, his junior and senior season, he played elite level competition in that Trinity league. I mean, they played IMG is one of the best games, uh, that I've seen, uh, or, or witnessed really on tape. Uh, that game was loaded with prospects, but you had this guy, Five foot 10, 185 pounds. He's so unassuming. I mean, he, he could be sitting on the couch right next to me and he just blend in. But the poise and the calmness and the creativity with how he played uh, was nothing like I'd ever seen. He had been in a lot of high pressure situations where he just delivered time in over again. And he, listen, he played with an elite supporting cast at modern day, but for him to basically... it. What I loved about him, you have uh, such a high regard for him. And then in your head, you're like, can he do this in college? And he goes to Alabama, he goes to the number one program in the country. And it it didn't look like he was playing a different game. It looked like he was playing the same game, but the players were different, right? And I fully expect that with him at the next level. The only question I have with Bryce Young is the durability. I, that frame at 200 pounds, I mean, it's not so much the size, it's, hey, can he, uh, the wear and tear of the position, um, and it's different in the NFL, even though he's played in the SEC at Alabama, I mean, that's, yeah. you know, he had the, had the shoulder that didn't end up really being a big deal last season, but that's the biggest question mark. Outside of that, I mean, the way he handles himself, the humility, the way he operates, and Listen, when it comes to that position, like when when you are five foot ten and you're slight, like this is not like a Kyler Murray, like five foot ten, like, you know, uh, a, a dual sport athlete who's getting, you know, generational, getting picked in the top ten in the MLB in the NFL draft. I mean, this is a guy that, like I said, he's he's 200 pounds. He had to work to get there at the NFL combine. Um like you're an and or a butt guy, right? Like you, you either have these physical traits and you have the production, or you have the production. And you don't or the other side. Right. And you have the physical traits or you don't have the production like Anthony Richardson. And you look at Bryce Young and it's like if you're a butt guy and you're undersized and you're a quarterback and you're in that conversation, you're probably pretty special and worthy of that number one pick. That's kind of the way I look at it. Real quick, uh, explain. I know what it means. It's the Saban and or butt thing, but you have to explain what a butt guy is. Otherwise, people are going to think you literally mean a butt guy, B-U-T-T. <laughs> a, butt, a butt guy <laughs> is uh, like, are you this player despite these other things, right? It could be an right. on or off the field thing. It could be you're lacking a certain trait, you're lacking size, you're la- lacking speed. I think it, Saban really kind of talks about it more within character, right? He's like, is, is your work ethic matching what you're doing on the field? Or are you going to be a problem? Uh, or, or going to uh, basically be somebody that's going to need a lot of maintenance, right? So that's that's kind of what he always said. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's special. You turn on the tape and you're like, you get a little bit fatigued because you expect it. And then you don't really understand how special it's like, it, you know, and I don't really like the Steph Curry comparison, but I understand it, right? Mm-hmm. It like, both those guys move around very similarly. They're undersized. They're fluid. And if you ask any defender who has to guard Steph Curry, they're exhausted. 
Bryce Young's kind of the same way. He gets a lot of credit for the way he sees the game processes, but I think the best trait about Bryce Young is the way he navigates the pocket and extends extends plays. I uh I have a funny moment with Bryce that showed I guess how he straddles he's a very good football character and a, a very nice person. I've I've talked to him twice. Um he was one of the first guests when this show became its own feed and it was a very funny moment there where I had just read uh, John Talty's book about uh, Nick Saban. And I had asked him because there were so many nuggets about things you would never think of. And I'm sure working for Alabama, you have the, the, the same thing where you're just like, in a mil- if you were watching football for a million years, you would never think of some of the things Nick Saban would think to teach you. Right. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, what's the best thing Nick Saban has ever taught you about football? So he starts telling me a little bit about the defensive back shouldering position. Uh, shoulder position in and kind of where to throw it, how to throw it. And halfway through the story, he starts to realize that he's giving up too much of Saban. And so he just hits the ejector seat on the story and then just starts profusely apologizing. And it's just like, I'm sorry. I'm, so, I, I'm sorry. And it's just like that. It's just so funny to me. Like you have to be the best of both worlds where you have to be kind of Saban-esque, but you can also be a very nice person. Saban, obviously, is is off the field a very uh, can can be a nice person as well. But it was just very funny to to exist in both those worlds: the Alabama quarterback and the very nice person. He straddles both. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's a hard that's a hard line to toe as well. But I think it's probably a, a, a perfect match for him. You know, going over there and, and playing under Steve Sarkeesian and getting the urgency and understanding of like, hey, this is I, the thing about Alabama is like it was the first job I ever had in football. But like when people ask me like, all right, you know, you've worked all these places, you've worked Harbaugh at Michigan, you worked Chris Peterson at Washington. My football DNA came from that one year when I was an intern, just cutting tape at Alabama. And listen, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, I mean, you look at the staff there, it was Kiffin on um, offensive coordinator, Kirby Smart, defensive coordinator, Billy Napier, receivers coach, Cristobal, the O-line coach, Bo Davis, the D-line coach, Kevin Steele, linebackers coach, Tosh Lupoy was an analyst. I mean, it was like, what is this place? It's like it's a Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory for me, you know? So you're just a, you're a sponge, you soak it in. And the great part about that place is no job felt too small or unimportant. And you learn that at a very young age, like, listen, you might be just a guy in this whole operation, but your job is very important. And that's the one thing that was made clear to everybody in that building. Somebody's told me recently a story, I think, around that staff about how they would call, they would learned on that staff, they would, they would call some elite prospect who didn't quite meet the size expectations or quite meet the physical. And Nick said, like, what are you doing calling this guy? And say, we could get a high four star. And Nick would be like, hang up the phone. Come on. Come on, we, 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 do, we do high weight and speed here, um, which I thought was, I think so many people learn football through that prism, and it's, and it's no surprise. Um, real quick, what's the most important thing Nick Saban taught you about football? From just a watching football differently perspective, what did you learn from that staff that, that now just, just you're saying, okay, that, that trick I learned from Nick? I think there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of, information out there in football and what i mean by that is i think there's a lot of internal pressure i think there's a lot of external pressure and there is a lot of egos in those buildings right we call them middle class millionaires a lot of guys like me and you all of a sudden they're sitting in these offices and they're making seven eight hundred thousand dollars working at you know these programs because of college football it is what it is i I think the one thing that I've learned from him and maybe Kirby Smart just watching him from afar 
is their unrelenting standard to their process. And what I mean by that is we, we've talked about height, weight, speed. There's a lot of people that say, hey, yeah, we want our team to be bigger, faster, stronger. They understand the bottom line better than anybody, right? So you take a look under the hood and, hey, th- there might be, uh, you know, the, the window wipers might not have enough fluid, right? Something's wrong with the blinker, but it's all about horsepower. That's the only thing that matters, right? And I think at Alabama and at Georgia, they understand that. And, you know, I think right now Alabama is an interesting position because they have a they have a team built to win, but I don't think they have it at the quarterback position. You know, so I think they're going to have to try to put that together. And that's been the first time in a long time that they haven't had that or have had that situation. So one thing I learned, I think just from afar in roster building, that's it. Like if you build a team, it's all about missing smart. Right. If you miss on the guy that has the size and the speed, those redeeming qualities I talk about, even if they don't live up to being the player you thought they would be, they're still going to provide you some depth and some quality. They're still going to add some value to your roster some way, some form. Cooper Patagna, uh, tell us where the folks can find you. 24-7 sports. I don't write, I don't write as much anymore, but the uh 24-7 sports football recruiting podcast. Spotify, Apple, it's on there with Andrew Ivins, uh, my guy. He does a tremendous job. So every uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're on there. I was listening to that pod over the weekend to get prepped for this one, and I could not believe. I love recruiting nostalgia. Andrew going to scout, and for the first time knowing who Jalen Carter was because he was going to watch Lorenzo Lingard. Like, <laughs> oh, man, you got to be. I mean, obviously, he was a high prospect, but, like, you got to be a real sicko to get a, to start fist pumping over Lorenzo Lingard. Because um, Jalen Carter uh, being the guy discovered in that game is very funny to me, if you remember uh, Lingard and the and the, uh, the chaos oh, yeah. his recruitment. Like, yeah. you know, everybody's f- flopping all over, you know, trying to get Lorenzo Lingard and, you know, disgracing themselves. And meanwhile, on the other side, Kirby's just going to pick up Jalen Carter and say, okay, this guy's mine. You're good. Yeah. Sometimes that's how it works out, man. Yeah. If you're in the Lorenzo Lingard uh, story, Kevin, you're a sicko, just like Andrew. Man. I know. That's, no, that's I why am, both I am, you guys are successful. I am, I am a sicko. <laughs> I am a sicko. All right. Guru Patagna, thank you so much for coming on, man. Appreciate you. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! All right, Lindsey Jones is here for a full draft recap. We just offline had a a uh, private parrot parent corner and i uh ended it with the phrase teddy's not allowed to watch baby influencers so that's where we're at <laughs> that's where we're at well what about when lena becomes an influencer can she watch or will can teddy watch her videos i do tbd tb <laughs> if, if she's playing video games like the folks that uh that, that you were describing um then no 
depends. It depends. It depends. Well, I will. All right. Well, I will say our kids had very different reactions to the draft. Your very young baby was very into it. And my daughter looked at the TV on Saturday and said, why is this still happening? I uh, she was, not was into day watching. Three of the draft. I have two televisions. And so because there was no there were no wow, live sports flex. on at one point. Um, I mean, it's for my job. Um, but that's what I tell my wife. My wife's always like, why are the two televisions here? Why is there an easel here? Why do we have two televisions? It's an eyesore. And I'm like, well, it's for my job. However, having said that, normally the second TV is just playing an action movie, which hurts my credibility, but we're just going to plow through. Um, but Teddy was in a swing. And so then he was just staring at the draft all day and I had to move him because that's apparently bad for, for babies. But I re- I could see he wanted to be a scout. I could see that. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Well, I, look, I very much look forward to his uh, his mock next year. I mean, if he wants it's to coming. drop a way too early mock, let's go. I'm ready it's for coming. it. It's um, coming. All right. So we're going to do three takeaways just to recap the weekend that was. I have so many thoughts. Number one is, it's funny because I referenced uh, well, consensus mock on Friday with Rusillo and talking about how much uh, certain teams reached or the Lions reached 44 spots. And now by the end of it, I'm actually so mad at the the mock industry that I I'm throwing I'm just everybody out like like I think that there's a value in saying the Lions reached a ton. I love the Lions as a franchise. There's no no bigger Lions fan than me. But I guess there are bigger Lions fans who are actual Lions fans. But for in the national media, I'm a big Lions booster. Um, but there is value in saying they could have waited on Gibbs. Uh, they could have just played the draft differently. Whatever. Like the amount of of takes I'm seeing, like, oh wow, the Cowboys really reached ten spots. That's not how ten this spots, works. Right? That's not how this works. Like, I, I don't. I, I just I could go all day on this, but like, it's that's not how we should be sitting here and judging. That's not how we should be sitting here and judging. If there's a huge pattern, fine. Or like if you're doing, you know, you know who who is laughed in the face, and I know in the last couple of years it's come back to bite him. Who's laughed in the face of consensus mocks for many years? Bill Belichick, who in the round three will take some random special teamer from a school you've never heard of, and just be like, "Yep, he's our starting safety. Congratulations!" Like that's that. I, I just I don't want to be kind of anti science, anti analytics here, but I just it's driving me crazy the prism of of oh we have to judge this pick because we can't. And which is fine. People saying I can't evaluate the prospect because I don't know that much because I'm not a scout. That's there's people out there saying so I can only evaluate the value, which is fine. But you can't make it so the entire thing is the value. There is some scouting that goes on here that you're not aware of, pal. Well, and I, I kind of had this on my list of things that I wanted to talk to uh, talk about today. Also, this and, is not even my takeaway, know, but go ahead. Oh well, it's well, I had a takeaway about like the draft industrial complex, just because I think, you know, it was the story of the first round, right? After we got kind of the the very the first quarterbacks to go at the beginning, the the, the story of Thursday night was the Lions, you know, reaching the Lions, you know, t- making picks that were really surprising. It was Will Levis, a guy who. You know, a lot of the draft, uh, the draft Knicks, not, I won't necessarily say draft media, but a lot of, you know, people who were doing a lot of mock drafts had him in the top four a couple days before the draft, you know, him falling. Like, these are the takeaways. I don't think the draft not going how we all expected it to go is going to actually hurt the draft at all. If anything, that's what made it interesting. That's what made 
the ratings probably go up. And I believe the ratings were up this year for the first round over last year uh, because it's that unpredictability. But what I do hope we all take away from it as like the media that is producing a lot of this content, but then also people who are really following this mm-hmm. is just to have a little bit of like an educated, like sense of where is this information coming from? A difference between mock drafts and big boards, because those are very different and the way that things fluctuate and the way that they move. And then what actually is a reach? Um, because it just, it was like a really weird first round and that nobody knew what was happening. Uh, nobody could predict it. Um, and, uh, you know, I just want people to be, you know, have like a critical eye when you're looking at these things and trying to bet about what's going to happen. It's funny because it's hard to strike a balance. I'm so glad I'm not a draft guru. You think a little bit about like Mapu, who is Daniel Jeremiah's favorite player, literal favorite player. And he goes 73rd overall to the, I'm sorry, he was, he was 73rd on Daniel Jeremiah's big board, but He's his favorite player in the draft. But if Daniel Jeremiah wanted to stake a claim and make him like his fifth on his big board, he would get laughed out of the room and Bill, you know, whatever. Bill Belichick takes him. And it's just hard because you have to sort of co-opt. And I was talking to someone at another outlet last year, and I was like, hey, why did you rank this player this? And they're like, well, we actually had to go off of this other mock draft that was with also within our company. And I'm just like, what? why and it's like well it just kind of feeds on itself we can't have that many different and it's like it just becomes a feedback loop and so someone like mapu who again daniel jeremiah favorite player in the draft it, he he would get destroyed if he had put him at nine on his top prospects list and then he goes at 80 or whatever whatever it was um and so it's a hard thing to do and i'm just i'm just glad that that i didn't do it by the way mapu was uh 76th overall to the so Patriots Daniel, Daniel Jeremiah Belichick. was uh Daniel Jeremiah was a bit in his bag, right? I mean, he was the only guy to call it Texans, Texans picking it two and three, which uh that didn't like blow up before the draft. But how cool is that that he just sort of like no commentary? He wasn't like, I'm not reporting this. <laughs> he wasn't doing the Jay Glazer I am reporting. They sometimes Jay Glazer starts out repeats tweets with I am sure. reporting. Daniel Jeremiah just put in his mock draft. He was just like, hey. Two and three. Here we go. Let's ride. Um, I had a very connected person tell me one time that they think that if you wanted to, if you wanted to, this would probably be the end of him for a while. But if you wanted to just to show off or like, I don't, I don't know why, some blaze of glory, that they think that the amount of information teams share with Daniel Jeremiah to pick his brain as an ex-scout, that they think that Daniel Jeremiah could do the full one through 32 a day early. I bet he could do like the full one through 50, one through yeah. 60, I don't, know, 64. I, don't know, I don't know at some point, but it's like, he's, they, he's yeah. kind of a, but he's kind of a lockbox. That's also why he gets the information. Yeah. Because and, if and you share he's able it with, to give it out into the world. Yes. Yeah. He's doing a lot of his transactional information behind the scenes where there's a lot of other guys, their jobs depend on, um, putting all of their transactional information out for the general public. Um, mm-hmm. That's just the nature. That's just the nature of this business. But, you know, I will say shout out to all those guys who do their intense work. I mean, Danny Kelly, our colleague, his uh, he wrote 42,000 words of scouting reports. I mean, that is so much, you know, just right. in-depth 
like he knows literally everything on all these prospects. Jeff Legwall does, you know, his 100 big board for ESPN. I mean, there's so many of these guys that do this stuff and it is, it is really intense. And then we get to the draft weekend and every year we're reminded that teams have their own boards and the own, their own things that they value. And, you know, we see Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell standing up in front of the media when it's all over and just saying, we're taking the players that we love. And we don't really care if you guys think that we're crazy. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, we all do draft grades. And, you know, a lot of it is based on what we think either value is or where they matched up to a big board. And ultimately, mm-hmm. in a couple of years, we'll see who was right. If it was Dan Campbell or if it was all of us who were screaming and yelling on Thursday night. <laughs> all right. Let's start with uh, let's start with our takeaways. I'm going to start with my first one. I actually... I was I had a first one, but I already talked about it in Rosillo, so I'm gonna make my third one. I'm gonna expand on it. Um, I want to talk about the Steelers here for a second, sure. who I felt were one of the winners of the draft. But more importantly, when you have what amounts to a first year GM, he was obviously mm-hmm. has been on the job forever, but Kevin Colbert was running the draft last year, kind of an Ozzie Newsome situation where he ran Ozzie ran the Lamar Jackson draft and they handed it off to DaCosta. Colbert takes a quarterback and then says, Omar, it's all yours. You do wonder, and hiring from within, and by the way, pairing Omar Khan, who was the cap guy, with Andy Weedell, who was a football guy, um, that felt like a perfect pairing to me. But you do wonder, is the Steelers, for lack of a better term, I know the Patriots have, have copyrighted the Patriot way, but for the lack of a better term, is, is the Steelers way going to stay in place? Are they still going to do smart things? Are they still going to go out and win these sort of drafts, make the easy pick and just, and I don't, by the way, don't think Pickett was an easy pick, but in most cases they go out and in August we're saying, how do they get this guy? How do they get George Pickett's? How did they get TJ Watt? You know, not first overall, right? Um, it's really incredible the way they're able to find these guys, work them in. Uh, they've had to change their philosophy a little bit because it used to be rookies just didn't play in Pittsburgh and there was a system. Now they do. But I was intrigued to see how this all sort of came into shape as a franchise. The first domino to fall was a Chase Claypool trade in the middle of the season where Omar Khan gets picked 32, essentially a first-round pick. Shout out Tom Brady and the Dolphins for a guy they didn't want around anymore. Awful trade. I would have loved, frankly... If they had spun that, because it sounds like they were getting a ton of calls, but I guess nothing reached their their threshold. If they had spun that into more picks, make it. I mean, if you've ever seen the, the piece about the Jimmy Garoppolo trade for the Patriots, where they ended up getting like 15 guys from the Jimmy Garoppolo trade because they just kept trading that second round pick over and over again. But it's interesting because they go with Joey Porter Jr., who I liked as a prospect. I didn't love him. I love guys like Deontay Banks more. I like guys like Christian Gonzalez more. I'm not surprised that Joey Porter Jr. fell a little bit. But Mike Tomlin comes out. I guess this was a meme over the weekend. You know they're calling Omar Khan the Khan artist? <laughs> I did Mike not Tomlin know that. Mike Tomlin has revealed uh... this. He has revealed this. Um, all right, so tons of intriguing prospects. Let's go through it. Broderick Jones, tackle from Georgia. My feelings on Georgia players are well-known. Went over with Cooper Patagna in the first segment here. Joey Porter Jr., second. Keanu Benton, one of the best athletes at the defensive tackle position, is a second-round pick, 49th overall. I love it. Darnell Washington, who, who dropped quite a bit. He had a knee. Uh, he was not an athlete. I thought he was going to be going into testing. When you look at him playing at Georgia, and he's jumping over... Oregon Ducks in the first week of the season. I say this guy's special. He became less special 
over the course of the season to me over the course of, of testing. But for pick 93, you take a flyer. Uh, Nick Herbig, a linebacker from Wisconsin. Corey Trice, who fell quite a bit, cornerback from Purdue. I think there were some medical issues there. Spencer Anderson is a guard out of Maryland. I don't know who that is. But if Omar Khan picked him and Andy Waddell picked him, good, great, grand. Um, I, I still worry about Kenny Pickett as a prospect and putting a ceiling in the organization. But aside from that, they're doing everything right in that division. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a really smart draft. Um, I loved the move when they uh, jumped, um, when they jumped a little bit in the first round, obviously jumping ahead of the Jets um, to get the tackle that they wanted. They, you know, Omar Khan saw that there was a run at that position happening and realizing what he needed to do. And it was a really smart trade to kind of get in position there. You know, I mentioned this on Friday when we were talking about the Seahawks and the draft that they, or the first round that the Seahawks put together. And it just, to me, stuck out as, we know who they are. We know what their identity is. And that is just so clear to me also with the Steelers. And they did a really wide search for Kevin Colbert's replacement. I mean, they interviewed, what, a dozen? They interviewed everybody. They interviewed Doug Whaley. Yeah. I mean, they literally, yeah. I mean, they were, uh, they did their due diligence, let's say. And then they ended up hiring a guy who's been in their building for a very long time, who clearly understands what it means to get players that Mike Tomlin likes, to get Mike Tomlin type of players. and. The Joey Porter pick, Joey Porter Jr., excuse me, um, it just was one of those really nice kind of like cool moments. They had been in Kansas City for the first round, obviously disappointed that he'd get drafted. I think he, uh, you know, if you listen to what he said after the draft was that, you know, he when when they saw the Steelers move up to take Broderick Jones, he kind of it, it was a little bit like a gut punch like that. That opportunity is now gone. Like he kind of had to like let that dream that he was going to be a stealer go for, for a moment. They went home. What do we see? First pick of the second round. He's already home in Pittsburgh and they like hopped in the car, the whole family and drove to the Steelers facility on the, on that on Friday night. And he did like a little impromptu press conference. It was just like, you know, a really nice moment, you know, is, is he a Nepo baby? Sure. But you know, he's, it's at a position Nepo of baby need. Joey Porter. Um, and one thing I'll say about the Joey Porter pick, is I miss Joey Porter's time in Pittsburgh, obviously. I think you did too. But as from a journalist, journalistic perspective, obviously we were watching. It really is a family atmosphere at Latrobe yes. in training camp, and they're staying in the dorms, and everything's low-key. It doesn't surprise me that they like to keep things in-house because it really is, it really is low-key. And I don't think I'm racking my brain, not really any place like that anymore. Um no, where I mean, there's lots of teams who always say like they say it, but the Steelers live it. There's there's a lack of there really is a lack of ego in that place. You know, I, and I'm talking about training camp, I'm really talking about training camp where it's just like everybody's together for a month. Everybody's wearing the dorm keys around their neck. Everybody's eating in the cafeteria. And it it, it, it doesn't surprise me that they like to um, take a guy who is the son of a guy who absolutely gets what that that place is all about has worked in the organization let alone um played in it for for years and was a locker room leader and all that stuff i i, I understand all that stuff all right first takeaway Lindsay jones so the one thing that i'm still thinking about in terms of like a trend that happened is that run on quarterbacks in day three mm. and kind of what that meant who these guys were that were getting drafted in the third fourth fifth sixth round guys that and honestly, like probably none of us thought we're going to get drafted. You know, a, a Sean Clifford to the Packers in the fifth round was like the pick that just it blew up all my group text because I 
have a lot of friends who cover college football. I ended up watching way too much Big Ten football this year. And Sean Clifford was maybe my least favorite college football player this year because every time I watched him, I was not 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 a lot of people baffled. upset and happy valley that he that he's moving on. No. And did you see the video of like his draft moment? The no. I think the the NFL tweeted it out. And I think this uh the, the Packers and everybody. He was like in like a and almost looked like he was in like a classroom. They were kind of like had these mm. like little desks and like plastic was he chairs. That he was doing that Gruden show they used to do. I don't know. And he was it it looked like he was like at school doing like a group project and all of a sudden got a text that said, Hey man, you're gonna get drafted. And they said, Oh shit, we gotta act like we're having a draft party. Um it was, it was, he was like watching it on a laptop. Like it was, it was very, um, it was kind of odd, but you know, Danny Kelly and I were messaging throughout the draft on Saturday. And, you know, as these quarterbacks are starting to go, we we're spending a lot of messages that it was like, what's going on trying to figure out, like, you know, it's a Jake Hayner to the saints in the third round, Stetson Bennett uh, in the fourth yeah. round, the kid from Purdue, Max Duggan went late in the draft. And, you know, I think Tom Pelissero tweeted this we we're chatting about this much is like, is this a Brock Purdy effect or is this yeah. just how many quarterbacks are having to play in the modern NFL? There were 58 yeah. quarterbacks who started at least one game last year. Um, there were a bunch of teams that had to start three different quarterbacks at one point last year because yep. of injuries. So we're, I think we're just seeing less so that people are looking at Brock Purdy and Mike or Kyle Shanahan, excuse me, and saying, we can do that. I can take any random college quarterback and make him a quarterback who can lead us to the NFC championship game and mm -hmm. more saying we're going to have to play multiple quarterbacks and it's worth investing a little bit more than we did in the past. But I mean, it, it was pretty wild to watch that run on Saturday afternoon. So let's go through it. After Hendon Hooker goes in the third round, that's I, let's let's completely put reasonable. Yeah, let's put Hooker in the in the upper echelon group of of quarterbacks. So that's the line of demarcation, right? Starting in the fourth round, Stetson Bennett, Jake Hayner, Hayner at twenty five, Bennett at twenty six, Aiden O'Connell. Oh, he was in the fourth. Purdue. Excuse me. Uh, yeah. Uh, fifth round, Clayton Toon from Houston, Jaron Hall from BYU, and Dorian Thompson Robinson from UCLA. Who actually I would have taken a little bit higher than some of these other guys. Tanner McKee from Stanford goes in the sixth round. I tend to think, Lindsay, a couple of things. Number one, quarterbacks. <laughs> this is the most basic thing I'll ever say. Quarterbacks are valuable. To have control over the process before undrafted free agency starts has a value, right? And you don't want to be trying to get Tanner McKee and throwing him 10000 extra dollars, and it's kind of a hassle. It's worth a sixth-round pick when you know, you're taking flyers on, on kind of random athletes anyway. You're taking that – the Steelers taking that damn guy from Maryland, Spencer Anderson, whatever his name is. I already forgot his name. Um, but, like, that's the range you're in, so you might as well take Tanner McKee, Doran Thompson-Robinson in the fifth round. Like, I, I, I understand that you're – if you have to take a quarterback – two rounds early anyway, if you're taking a guy in the fifth round, you're taking an undrafted free agent, right? Like, I think that that's that makes sense to me. Stetson Bennett is a bad pick. And first of all, way overdrafted. I know we joke about that, but like, yes, like I, there were not a lot. There were teams that were not going to draft Stetson Bennett, okay? Um, the pre-draft process was not good. Someone told me Max Duggan is what Georgia fans think Stetson Bennett is. Um, and as far as 
like culture guy, whatever. Stetson Bennett did amazing things at the college level. Amazing things. And he will never have to buy a drink in Athens, Georgia, or anywhere in Georgia ever again. Down to go down to Savannah, have a nice little weekend. Doesn't have to pay for anything. Good for him. Um, but a lot of people. And listen, I know, I know the argument already, which is he there were a lot of guys who came through Georgia. He beat out all of them. We're talking about high, high recruits, all that stuff. A lot of people tried to take that job from him. He didn't relinquish it. Fine. Played well in, in the spots. But there are a lot of people on this earth, quarterback-wise, who, who, who could have won some national championships with that Georgia team. Okay? Stetson Bennett did a great job. Some of those throws, I was in Indy for the national championship uh, when they beat Alabama. Some of the throws he had were wonderful. Some of the other throws, wide open. Wide open throwbacks. Mr. Brock Bowers, that kind of stuff. Um, he did what he was supposed to do. That doesn't make you an NFL quarterback. I'm frankly stunned that the Rams used a fourth round pick on him when the Rams don't have that many picks and they need to maximize that kind of thing. I don't know why you do that. Uh, frankly, you can get a guy better than Stetson Bennett in free agency for next to no money, or you can trade a fourth round pick for a quarterback who's way better than Stetson Bennett, a veteran a backup right now on a roster. So I didn't like it. I'm never, ever, ever going to bet against the Rams maximizing a quarterback. But even if they do that here, uh, I don't, I don't see much of an upside. Well, and the, and the thing too, about him going to LA right now, as, as we mentioned, I believe on Friday, he is their backup quarterback right now. Um, Their QB room was going into the draft, Matthew Stafford. And that was it. And if you watched much of Matthew Stafford last year, last year, you know, and you probably missed a bunch of games of Matthew Stafford because he was sidelined because he had that issue with his elbow uh, all through training camp. And then he had some weird thing going on with his back. And, you know, he's been working out and they say, you know, they're saying all the right things that he's going to be ready to play and is feeling great. And, you know, those issues should be behind him. But I believe he's 35. He has a lot of wear and tear. He's an old 35, right? I mean, he came into the NFL really young. He's played a ton. He's fought through a lot of stuff in the course of his career. So if we're looking at that list of quarterbacks that you just read off all of their names, and I did say how many starting quarterbacks had to play last or quarterbacks had to start a game last year, Stetson Bennett is the QB two behind Matthew Stafford is pretty high up on the list of guys that are likely to take some meaningful snaps this year. And that'll be interesting. I'm going to float something. Okay. Here it comes. Here comes a float. Um, the Rams have an injured quarterback and, and I'm talking like this, it's an injury. It's never going to go away. Even if he gets healthy, odds are there's going to be something wrong with Matthew Stafford for his career, which is worth it. He's won a Super Bowl. He's made a ton of money, taking a lot of hits, all that stuff. I, I sat down with him a couple of years ago. We talked about all his injuries. It was unbelievable what he's gone through. He doesn't want to miss a game. He does not want to miss a game to the point that when he misses a game, I go, Oh my God, he's really hurt. So they draft pretty average quarterback at best, being as generous as I can, as charitable as I can in the fourth round. Are we sure the Rams aren't a Caleb Williams, Drake May contender? We have the letter. We have the letter from Kevin Demoff saying, we're going to take a, we're going to take a step back. We knew there were going to be some ugly years is the next evolution of the Rams taking a step back to the point that they actively tank. They do, for those of you preemptively asking, 
Do they have a first round pick? Yes, they do have a first round pick. Uh, all right. It'll be their what first one since Jared Goff in 2016. Wonderful. So, well, they just take be, quarterbacks. It'd be perfect. That's exactly. They just take, take a quarterback. Take quarterbacks. I'm just saying, when you read the tea leaves, and we still don't know what other veterans they're going to trade, I'm just throwing it out there. A smart, forward-thinking franchise picking a good year to take a step back wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world. They're just still such a they're an, they're an interesting roster because when they're healthy, they have some very very good players. Only a handful of them, not as many as they used to. And it's hard to see a team with a healthy Aaron Donald and Cooper Cup like not winning enough, you know, not winning at least a handful of games, but those guys didn't play much last year, so we'll see. The three teams without first round picks next year, do you know what they are? Because one one of them is a segue into my next take. Cleveland. Cleveland's one of them. Yes. Denver. Carolina. No. Carolina. Oh, Carolina. Carolina. And uh, San Francisco. The Houston Texans. Oh no, they and, have one, don't they? Because well, they no, had two. I'm sorry, sorry. They have they, they don't have their own. They have the Cle- They have right. They have, they have Cleveland's. We, the yeah. aforementioned Cleveland to Houston, but then Houston's pick goes to Arizona. Yeah. Yes. So. Here it is. So first of all, we, we kind of laughed about this on Twitter yesterday, but the Cardinals never making Jonathan Gannon available is very funny. So obviously it was in response to the tampering thing, which he could have gotten out ahead of and it would have been totally fine. Yeah. Um, and he could just release a statement. had not taken questions. I feel terrible about it. The report came out that they thought the Eagles got mad at Gannon because they thought he had one step, foot out the door during Super Bowl week, which... If you look at the game plan, maybe that was true. On the other hand, it was Andy Reid versus Patrick Mahomes. What was Jonathan, Jonathan Gannon going to do? There might have been a case we made that Jonathan Cannon would have. You, you won him with one foot out the door. Well, he's all the way out the door. They had to they just basically do a pick swap in a settlement, which I didn't even know you could do. Um, it's fascinated by that. But not to dunk on the Cardinals, because I'm actually going to flip it. The Cardinals might be, even though they hired Jonathan Gannon, falling ass backwards here into a nice little run. And maybe Monty Austin for it just crushes it. Maybe he's amazing. But if you look at the chaos surrounding the Cardinals right now, quarterback is out, hired a defensive coordinator that has not set the world on fire in the first couple of months in his tenure. Um, They have a couple of lawsuits floating around where like, I don't even like Terry McDonough is, is, is alleging all sorts of things, a former basically number two in the organization, alleging all sorts of things. Um, and then there's still that lawsuit from the assistant coach who was fired, who said it was mistaken identity with some oh, other God. allegations. From Mexico City? Oh, from yeah. Mexico oh. City. I mean, there are a lot of things going on. Like, I'm not a big distractions guy. I don't think it's distractions are all that real in the NFL. A lot of distractions flowing around the the valley there. Um, having said that, I think they're going to be in the mix for the first overall pick next year, which you really want. I also think they're going to be in the mix with the Texans pick for the second overall pick. Mm -hmm. And then you think about the amount of quarterbacks that might go with the top. And you say, even if they don't get the first pick, even if they don't get the second pick, even if the Texans pick becomes the fifth pick, it's a type of draft that will have really good players outside the quarterback position that you're going to be able to auction off. 
So if Monty Asenfort wants to play this smartly, and so far he has, he could really build something with this draft capital. They could accidentally become the new... The, uh, Jonathan Gannon could actually, the actually become the new, the new, no, the new Jimmy Johnson, where he just gets, he oh, makes okay. one trade, and all of a sudden he's got, you know, five All Pros. So, ooh, I don't know. This this could be pretty good. I don't love what the Texans did. I talked about that on still on Friday, but man, this Cardinals setup here. They also, by the way, so let's go through it. They have the Texans pick next year. They have a third round pick from the Texans, a third round pick from the Titans, a projected comp pick in the fourth round. And then the fifth round pick from the Eagles, which I don't even, was that the part of the pick swap? I don't know. It's on the list here. Yeah. So I, I said, you know, I mentioned the Browns because there was a run where the Browns had a ton of capital. They had multiple yes. really high first round picks for a while, including, you know, I said, I believe back to back first round picks our, our number one overall picks a few years ago. And this is, a, that's an organization who had a ton of capital and largely squandered, squandered it by doing things mm-hmm. like drafting Johnny Manziel and Justin Gilbert and, uh, yeah, you know, picking very bad players. So hopefully the Cardinals can avoid that. They can uh, actually, you know, pick good players. I, I'm with you on the Texans thing because I think they're going to look next year at what that pick could be. What l- Let's say that ends up being the second pick, the third pick, God forbid, the first pick, and it could absolutely be the first pick. And they would have had a chance to draft literally any player in that class that they wanted. Marvin Harrison Jr., the best tackle in that class, whoever that might be, the best defensive player in that draft. And we all really like Will Anderson Jr., but I think unless Will Anderson becomes, God, I don't even know who, like DeMarcus Ware, like Miles Garrett, JJ Watt, or like, you know, kind of a franchise, you know, you know, like a face of the franchise generational Hall of Fame player. I'm not sure if that, that, that trade is worth it, but the Cardinals are going to be fascinating. And, uh, not fascinating from a it's going to be good football because I think it's going to be very, very bad football. Who's playing quarterback for them? Who's it going to be this year? Does it matter? For the Arizona Cardinals? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's going to be a Trace I mean, McSorley, Colt McCoy, yeah, I, I, David I Blau. Mean, These are all guys you, you who started want games somebody last as year. Bad as, you want somebody as bad as possible. Dylan Brooks. Uh, Colt McCoy is second on the depth chart. Is Colt McCoy on the roster still? We're looking into this. It's a good, this is a good question. Oh, he is. Um, it, he is. We're cooking. We are cooking. Uh, it will be really here? funny though if they if they end up with the number one pick last next year, trade Kyler Murray to draft Caleb Williams, who was just coached by Cliff Kingsbury. They signed like the. They signed Cole McCoy to a two year extension in March of 2022. Okay. So he's still he's still cooking. So we we got maybe, it. He might started be, might be a little three too games good last year. Uh, doubt it. Doubt it. 11 and 25 career record. I would say their only um, failure last weekend, despite uh, in addition to the tampering stuff and having to swap picks, um, was not trading DeAndre Hopkins at some point during the draft and getting something in return. Um, so, They'll you know, figure maybe it missed opportunity it there. Do you have another takeaway? Um, yeah. Uh, the Colts are back. We're all uh, yes. in on the Colts. I, I was going to sh- This is my last takeaway was shouting out the Colts and then another team. So, yeah, Colts are back. Um, you know, in our infamous podcast that never aired, that we recorded last week um, before the world, the NFL world blew up for a couple of days. Um, we talked a lot about Chris Ballard and a guy that we were really interested to see how this draft was going to go for him, what the impact of Jim Irsay was going to be. And I think we saw that the board fell really well for the Colts. And despite 
Jim Irsay's eccentricities and his pensions for tweeting crazy stuff like he was doing on Friday, they didn't really do anything nuts, right? I think they took really good athletic, really athletic football players. Um, makes a ton of sense. Love the Anthony Richardson pick. Love that they took him at four. Didn't have to, you know, give up any future capital to get him there. You know, some interesting dynamics in there still that like Jim Irsay is saying he's going to start this year. I'm sure Shane Steichen loves, loves that. That, you know, the year owner has already said that before rookie minicamp has even happened. But I just thought it was a really good draft. Um, you know, Chris Ballard was a guy, and I think he's still going to be a guy that we're kind of just watching given all the changes that have gone on in that organization. But for a guy who was probably feeling some heat coming into this draft season, I think he came out of it as a really big winner. So it's funny because I actually understand the Richardson pick quite a bit. Relative to where they were taken, I actually like the Richardson pick the least out of some of uh, out of their picks in the, let's say the first five rounds, whatever. Right. But the bulk of their pick dovetails so well with how I view football, which is take, take really good athletes and coach them up. And there obviously has to be a baseline of production and character and all of that stuff. But once they clear that, take them, coach them up, draft them all, let the coaches sort it out. Richardson goes forth. We'll see how it goes. Talked about it on Rosillo on Friday, just kind of how I just hope that he gets the same leeway that Josh Allen got and we get to wait until year two and year three to make any grand. You know, listen, they Josh Allen was not supposed to play year one. And by the you know, Brandon B basically told me that they were so worried about that O line, worried he was gonna get killed, and they were like, he basically survived by the grace of God, right? And and got to year two, got to year three. Um, and then he had his breakout, but he had the best infrastructure, all that stuff. Can Shane second provide that? I'm not betting against it. No one, we want to talk about rewriting history. No one had Brian Dayball as like quarterback genius before the Josh Allen thing. He was in a bunch of places. He went to Alabama. He went to the Nick Saban rehab program, but he was in Miami. He was okay. He was in Cleveland. He was okay. He was in New England. Nothing to write home about from a national perspective. Then he goes and does Josh Allen. And so I don't think that we can sit here and say like, oh, Shane Steichen is him or whatever, or he's not. I'm just saying that you get to prove your bona fides in a situation like this. Okay. Julius Brents, Juju Brents, cornerback from Kansas State. I love him. I love him. Uh, Josh Downs. I asked somebody about this. I asked a couple people over the weekend, what's to do with Josh Downs? Why is he dropping? Small guy, not very fast, but here's what he does. He makes plays, and he's going to be in the league for a long time. Um, he's the type of guy who can be a safety valve for someone like Anthony Richardson, get the ball in his hands, he can do good things. Um, added by war from Northwestern, he went in the fourth round. Probably the best defensive end athlete in this draft. The problem is, if you want to say he's 282 pounds and he moves really well. If you want to say he's a defensive tackle, then he becomes an undersized defensive tackle, and those are a dime a dozen. So I don't know where they play him. Um, I don't know where they're going to list him. I don't know any of that stuff. I'm just saying that if you're just looking at the numbers, he can move, and you can figure some stuff out to do with him. If you're going to play him inside, that comes with a whole host of problems, but whatever. Uh, Will Mallory, who I actually quite like, went to Miami. Um, you know, didn't didn't set the world on fire, but he's a good athlete and kind of knows what he's doing on the football field. So that's, that's the Colts draft to me. Jim Irsay presents its own problems. That organization has gone through a hell of a lot. Jeff Saturday is not around anymore. Um, but if there's anything that's going to save Chris Ballard's job, 
it's hitting on a bunch of guys like he did a few years ago where he had one draft class that made us think he was the best GM in football. He needs that again. Uh, last thing. So Who's we got to go. Team? We got to go. I was going to shout out the Giants. All right. Who I thought did perfectly. I don't love the the math. Uh, the, I was going to call it the Matthew Stafford contract. I love the Matthew Stafford contract a couple of years ago. Um, Daniel Jones. Don't like it. But, but, A, you've proven you have a proof of concept. You can at least win with Daniel Jones. But then to add Deontay Banks. I uh, don't know a ton about their 57th overall pick. The center from Minnesota wasn't grinding Minnesota tape. But that doesn't mean he's bad. Uh, Jalen Hyatt. Tell you what, I watch a lot of college football. Jalen Hyatt was uh, getting open against a lot of good teams. I put Josh Downs in that bucket too. Every time I watched a game, I'd say, huh, that's funny. Jalen Hyatt's five yards behind Alabama's secondary. Probably an NFL guy. Um, So I, I just, I think they got good football players. And I don't think, I think we just overlook sometimes like taking a bunch of guys who just fucking crushed it in college. And I love it. So that's it. I'm with you. I mean, I, the, the, my my note on the Giants is that they were the surprise team last year, you know, that they were probably overperforming at least one year early. And the fact that they made the playoffs and won a playoff game, I think maybe overshadowed how many roster deficiencies they had. So really important for Joe Shane and company to nail it in their th- this draft and seems like they have so far. Also, I just don't even know. You really don't even know. Same with Omar Khan. Like, Obviously, Joe Shane was in place last year, but you don't really know these guys. You're dealing with the yeah. scouts from last year, all that stuff. So, like, to see them have a proof comes up, okay, they're getting good players. I like that. All right, Lindsay, we'll be back next week, I think, after the Miami Grand Prix, which is taking most of my time this week. I know you're locked in. You're locked in to see how Haas does down in, at, at their home race. No, I'm just hoping that you will come back with some reporting about all the Taylor Swift rumors. So, if Ain't you could do that, that for me truth. and Nora, that Ain't would be fantastic. That the truth. Meg Schuster will be boots on the ground as well. She can help on that. Uh, all right. We'll see you soon, pal. Thanks. See ya.